Hey, it's Joey Thurman. I'm excited to bring you season two of the Fad or Future podcast. We live in a world where information is everywhere, easy to access, and sometimes not always accurate, especially in the health and wellness space, which is exactly why I created this show. There's two sides to every story, and I'm here to present both and let you decide, is it a fad or is it the future? Health fads come and go, but the science behind them is what makes them work or fail. I'm bringing the experts to you and putting the facts on the table so you can decide how and where to put your efforts in your own personal health and wellness journey. All right, happy whatever day it is in 2020. It's Joey Thurman. Welcome to another episode of the Fat or Future podcast. And in front of me is a living legend, Brad Schoenfeld, PhD. Should I call you doctor? You can call me Brad. <laughs> How come? It's, it's funny because every PhD I interview, I just interviewed a neuroscientist from Stanford last week, and I said the same thing. He's like, no, just, no, just don't, don't call me doctor. Like, you guys work so hard. I feel like PhDs just have a, a, I don't know what it is. There's just this level of like, yes, I went to a lot of school, but uh, I'm not any better than you are. So, uh, all right, Brad. So, Matt, I don't even know how to go about your bio. Normally, I read a bunch of stuff. I mean, you, you're, you're a personal trainer, you're a professor, you're a researcher, you do all sorts of things, uh, and, and pretty much one of the world's foremost authorities on hypertrophy, muscle building, uh, and training. And you know, I, I saw you for the first time uh, was on Instagram, and then we have uh, some mutual acquaintances, and started following your stuff. And then I got your second edition of science and development of muscle hypertrophy, which is great. And we're going to get into that, but is there anything else that you don't do? Uh, I don't do well in relationships. At, <laughs> uh, at least that's what my girlfriends will tell you. So. Uh, uh, girlfriends. I don't know if you guys previous girlfriends. Yeah, girlfriends. Okay, cool. Well, I've been married for almost 12 years. I don't know if that's me doing well in a relationship or she just hasn't found anybody better. Probably that. And now we got a kid, so she can't really leave me because, you know, that just. So, anybody out there, if you want to keep the person you're with, have a child with them. It's much harder for them to leave you. Right, that was great advice right there. Okay. So, relationships, that's the only thing that you're bad at. Can you tell me no, what? No, I wouldn't say the only thing. I chose was the first that came to mind. Uh, 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 dancing. Can you dance? Uh, not too well. <laughs> All right. Relationships and dancing, which might go hand in hand. It's, you might be right. I'm not quite sure if you've done a research study on that, but you, you I have not. <laughs> that's the next one. A relationships, dancing and, and, and building muscle. All right. So, Hey, what's a, and what's a typical day for like, uh, for you? I mean, I know you're, you're, you're teaching, you're doing all sorts of research. What does that look like? Well, we're in very different times now. So we're right in the middle of a pandemic and, uh, that obviously has changed, uh, a lot of my daily living. Uh, but generally speaking, I mean, I, I'm a professor, so I teach uh, a couple of days a week. I do a lot of carry out in, uh, research on campus. So I'm involved in, uh, in on-site research. I'm involved in collaborating on a lot of papers where other uh, labs will do the data collection and then uh, collaborate with me where I actually help to interpret the data and write it up and provide input into into the data. Uh, I am very uh, big on, well, I, I also do other writing too, so I, I've written books, as you just pointed out. Yep. Uh, um, and I do a lot of uh, international speaking, so I travel, generally speaking, and this is during the pandemic, has been a wash, but sure. uh, usually at least once a month I'll be speaking somewhere in uh, doing seminars, conferences, where I discuss the science of, uh, of generally muscle growth, but I, I mean, exercise in general and nutrition, some nutrition as well, and really discussing uh, how to take an evidence-based approach. And I should also mention that I'm a consultant, a nutritional consultant to the New Jersey Devils National Hockey League team. Nice. Uh, so I go to many of their games uh, when, they're not on either, now, but uh, yeah. But anyway, so I, I mean, I, I do keep quite busy, and uh, it fuels my passion. What's What's your favorite part of all that? I, it's just educating. I, I wouldn't say uh, when you say favorite part. I, I each one gives me certain. It, it contributes to my self actualization, but I think the most important 
take home from all of them is that I feel that I'm making an impact uh, on people's lives, whether it be my students, whether it be those who I uh, speak to that are, that are reading my research, that are reading books. Uh, so my, my goal uh, around this earth is short, relatively short period of time, and I'm an educator and hope yeah. to, uh, in this short period, make an impact uh, in my own way. Well, that you are, my friend. You're definitely making an impact. All right, so let's talk about it. So right now, I'm sure you're getting this question a lot. I mean, I'm in Chicago, so numbers are going up. We don't know if we're going to shut down. People are afraid of going to the gym. Is it possible to add a decent amount of muscle tissue by simply just working out at home with what you have, whether that's dumbbells, bands, body weight? And what, what is the research pointing to? So my answer, when you're going to ask me these types of questions, pretty much invariably, my answer, my generalized answer will be, and it depends. Right. Because uh, from an applied standpoint, uh, there are huge inter-individual differences. And so to answer your question, it would depend on your training status, mm -hmm. uh, your uh, nutritional status, what you have, what uh, what type of equipment you can avail yourself to, and a variety of other things. Certainly, if you are just starting out a routine, you can get huge results just by training at home. If you have a well-stocked uh, home gym, even if you are uh, a very advanced lifter, you can continue to make gains. Now, if you just have body weight exercise and you're an advanced lifter and you're a bodybuilder who's been very serious, your ability to maximize your muscle more than you have will be very limited. Yep. Uh, but, and there's everything in between. So we're mm. talking now at polar ends of different spectrums. Mm. And uh, then you have to look at where you are on that continuum, both from a genetics, genetics will enter into a genetic lifestyle and, and the environment, the equipment that you have, et cetera. Yeah, I, I see a lot of people now, they're working out in the parks because they're just, you know, whatever, whether they're afraid to go back to the gym or their particular facility is limiting the amount of people. But uh, let's talk, uh, talk about body weight. Body by weight. the way, yeah. I, I, will, I will say this. I think this can be a, at least a more, uh, more concrete answer in that you can maintain, mm. even as a high-level bodybuilder, you can pretty much maintain what you have doing much less than you normally would. Uh, and, and even with the uh, less equipment, et cetera. I mean, as long as you are pushing yourself, going to failure closely, having a high level of effort in your sets, uh, reductions in volume, reductions in, uh, in uh, the types of exercise that you're doing, et cetera, will not have major effects on losing mass, provided, again, that you have, that you're uh, consistent, that you're going to have at least a decent uh, volume, uh, min you're going to get a minimum, and that'll be different for different people. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, that you do push yourself. So if you have body weight, you've got to find ways to make those exercises challenging enough so the last few repetitions are going to be difficult to complete. Okay, so for people that are taking things to either failure or really getting to form failure, is that what you're meaning by the amount of yeah, intensity? Yeah, even you know, within a couple of reps short of failure, it doesn't necessarily even have to be all-out failure, yeah. but correct. Uh, I, I think that is something that still needs to be fully, uh, that we have not had, we're not fully sure of yet from a research standpoint as to the need to go to all-out failure. Mm -hmm. But I would say with quite good confidence that... Uh, Certainly from a maintenance standpoint, uh, you do not need to fully go to failure, but even repetitions in reserve, which is how close you are to failure, uh, one or two reps uh, is not going to make. Yeah, because you know, normally when I'm in the gym and training people and I, and I see individuals working out on their own and they're doing a bicep curl, you know, really easy exercise to understand. People are trying to do it to the point where they're just kind of throwing their backs into it. They're probably not even recruiting their bicep. I think that's what people think that they need to get to, to the point where they're going to almost injure themselves and their, and their just form looks like shit. But for you uh, and anybody listening now, it makes sense from what you're saying that you can just get close to that point while still maintaining good form and still achieve results. Well, I, and I would also say that that is, what you just said would not be the definition of failure because the, the true definition of failure is in, is in quotes, in good form, right. is pushing yourself to the point where you can't do another rep in good form. If you're twisting your body to complete the rep, that in itself has shown that you're, you're not uh, 
properly going about the failure aspect. There should be massive signs in the gym that says what, what failure actually is, then maybe, maybe there'd be much less meatheads dropping weights because they can't actually get that weight up. All right, cool. So um, there's all sorts of different things that people talk about how they're you know, going to create muscle growth, whether it's metabolic stress and mechanical tension. Um, you know, like what, what have you found? I know that in, in your book, you point out a bunch of different research. Is there one specific modality that you found is better than the other? Um, what do you mean by modality? So essentially, like if you're looking at a, a rep range, for example, like let's go with the, the simplicity of that. I mean, if you're looking at like metabolic stress or something that's much higher repetitions, you know, in your book, it, it said that you can pretty much add muscle tissue in almost any, any rep range. And now that people are always thinking like that eight to 10, or they need to do 10 sets of 10, or um, what have you found that seems to be, you know, something that the research is pointing to that people might not be aware of because they're going by what they learned in high school 20 years ago from their you know, PE coach? Well, from a loading standpoint, I think you hit on it quite nicely in that uh, across a very wide spectrum of loading ranges, you can get roughly similar uh, benefits from a muscle development standpoint. Now, strength will be much more dependent on the uh, heaviness of the load, the magnitude of the load. So how, how much uh, weight you're using will be specific to your strength gains, much more specific. Although you still can get, contrary to popular belief, you still can get stronger depending upon who you are. And this again will be, it depends. Uh, certainly in untrained subjects or moderately trained recreationally trained subjects, individuals, uh, they can make quite good strength gains with even very light loads, provided that they are pushing themselves close to failure. But the heavier loads are gonna be necessary for maximizing strength. Uh, from a muscle development standpoint, I mean, up to 30 to 40 reps uh, going, again, close to failure produces on a whole muscle level uh, roughly the same amount of growth as 10 reps, the so-called hypertrophy range, and, and well. Uh, whether the mechanisms still need to be better determined. In, in research terms, that's elucidated. Uh, so they need to elucidate them better. But uh, we do know that mechanical tension is the so a high level of mechanical forces uh, on the muscle are imperative. They, they are the most important factor. Now, that in some respects, you'd say, well, that means heavier load should be more appropriate for growth. However, you can get very high rates of mechanical tension at the last several reps of a light load set. So it has to do with how close, again, it really is more a function of how close you're getting towards failure that is determining the amount of tension on the muscle, at least to a good extent. I, I think, uh, yeah, a lot of people, they really don't understand that because they're thinking that, you know, if they're picking up a pink weight or purple weight, whether you're a guy or girl, you want to pink, lift pink and purple weights, that's fine. But when they're getting to those last few reps, so that's when you're saying that is actually creating that mechanical tension as well. Just because you're lifting a light weight doesn't mean that you're not going to get the mechanical tension. Am I correct? Correct. It means that in the early repetitions of, let's say you're doing a 40 RM, so you're doing a, a weight that you can lift 40 times and not 41. Uh, your first rep is going to be extremely light. There's not going to be much tension generated in that repetition. Thus, if you were to stop after one rep, it's not going to do anything to enhance your muscle growth. Alternatively, if you were to lift a 3RM, so the maximum amount of weight that you can lift three times, that first rep is going to be very heavy. And that, while it might not maximize your growth, even just lifting one rep of a 3RM and certainly in the early stages of training, can promote decent growth. So again, there is a spectrum. Right. So, uh, and, and the tension will be specific to how close you are to the point of fatigue. Yeah, and, and, and that's a good segue, because you, you talk about tension in your book, and everybody's like, time under tension, time under tension. But for what you just said, if you did a three rep max, you're still going to get some sort of hypertrophy gain and stimulus and growth that way. It's not like you have to, a lot of people are saying, oh, I need to, at 40 to 60 seconds, you know, uh, of that time under tension. And th those, that could be crap reps for 60 seconds. So I'm sure it's the quality of reps as well. Well, quality is always going to enter into it. But the other thing is there's a volume factor that enters into it as well. So if you're just doing a three RM 
yeah, you certainly you're going to get growth. But let's say you're doing a 3RM versus a 10RM. While there is differences in your time under tension for that given set, mm-hmm. uh, you, we have shown, my, actually my doctoral research uh, was, uh, a specific topic was to look at this under volume equated uh, circumstances. So when you uh, lift seven sets of three, it has roughly the same total tension for the time under tension for the session as three sets of 10 then there's no differences in, in growth. There's very similar growth. However, we also did a study, three sets of three versus three sets of 10. And at least for the lower body, the uh, amount of development was greater for the three sets of 10. So the greater time. So what I'm saying here in, to kind of break this down yeah. is that it seems that the time under tension is more relevant over the course of the session. It doesn't have to be within that given set. Mm. So now the other side of that is is that when you're doing very heavy loads and you're then doing more volume to get that greater time under tension, it's very demanding on both the neuromuscular system as well as the joints. And in my study that we did, the people that were doing the three sets of 10 and training hard were were really fried by the end of an eight week study period. So they were getting, I mean, several dropped out over injury. Uh, Virtually all the others were complaining of back issues just sore, sore, just general soreness, and they wanted a break. Whereas the three sets of 10, they were fresh as daisies. They, hmm. they felt they could have done more. So you, I, it's just not an efficient way to train, although mechanistically we can say it seems that the session time under tension is the more relevant factor. From a practical standpoint, using very heavy loads is not generally the best way to maximize growth. It's the best way to maximize strength. Mm. And that's why doing certain periodization strategies were including uh, heavy load training within, in some way within your training scheme would be important for the goal of maximizing strength. It is not necessarily the best way to maximize growth. And that's probably for a safety standpoint as well. I mean, if you're lifting a heavy load, you're going to have a higher injury um, potential from lifting a heavy weight for most individuals. I understand like once you get to the, the you know, the, the form failure reps, people might going into it. But from what I've seen, if somebody you can give them a 15 pound dumbbell and curl and they're going to have perfect form the whole time. And even though they could curl a 30 or 40 pound dumbbell, that form just is even mentally as well. I'm sure mechanically something is happening too, but their, their form just all of a sudden goes and then they're going to, you know, use some sort of cheat, cheating mechanism or, you know, throw some other body part in there. So uh, to me, it makes sense for people if they're looking for a safety standpoint or they don't have a spotter, that would make a lot more sense to go for those a um, little bit lighter uh, volume loads per set. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. And I would say that uh, the uh, risk of injury, uh, certainly if you're lifting something very heavy, there would be the chance of getting, well, I should also, I was going to say a, more of an acute injury, uh, but there were... Uh, it's somewhat hard to say because you could say that you're doing a lot of reps. There might be repetitive motion type injuries that you'd get, such yep. as, uh, I mean, we talk about carpal tunnel, which I'm not sure that uh, the amount of reps you do within a set would necessarily bring that about. And again, the higher volumes, like I said, that you'd need to, uh, to carry out to, or to get the time under tension per session uh, has led to more chronic related injuries over time rather than acute. So yeah. I, I think uh, in retrospect, I would agree with that statement. As well. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, what about people that are coming in and they're doing, you know, M- Monday's always chest day for guys or whatever, or Monday's always U- universal whatever. chest day. Yeah, yeah, universal chest day or button thighs for girls, whatever it is. But what about people that are coming in and they're doing like four or five different exercises that and four or five sets for body parts are so doing 20 24 sets of chest and from what i've been looking into it almost seems like 20 sets or 24 sets maybe unless you're getting like competition ready and you're trying to like completely drain the muscle but is there too much where people can come in and do too much for a body part where it becomes detrimental and you know part b of that question is what is the amount of sets per week per body part that will elicit proper muscle growth yeah, the, so to your first question, um, certainly that's been the uh, course of many bodybuilders over the years. And you could say, well, you can't argue with results, but the research seems to point to uh, thresholds for, uh, for the amount of volume in a given session. 
So if you're going to do 20 sets for chest, it's better to do two days uh, of chest where you'd split that up into two, two sessions of 10 uh, rather than one session of 20. Uh, and, and the theoretical rationale for that is that muscle growth is driven by what's called muscle protein synthesis, which is the uh, creation of muscle proteins. And that at some point you just tap out your ability within a given volume to continue synthesizing proteins for that session. Uh, again, that is the working theory that has not been tested empirically. Uh, as far as, uh, and, and these are just, that's a rough, Generally, like eight, you'd figure somewhere around eight to 10 sets per muscle group per session would be kind of that tap out where you don't want to, uh, you'd want to split your workouts over more days if it's going beyond that. Um, as far as the uh, volume per, per week per muscle group, uh, it's not really clear. Uh, certainly from the research, it's not clear. I think, well, I, I think what's clear from a practical standpoint, because the research has limitations into what you can determine. I, I can say this more anecdotally. It seems that somewhere between 10 to 20 sets is a good general uh, framework for volume. Some people can do quite well in it, or as good or even better with somewhat lower volumes than that. Some people will need more. But I think uh, from there, two things. Number one, uh, you don't necessarily have to do the same volume for every muscle group. And the way I look at it, uh, or at least this is my working theory at this point, is that there's an overall volume for all your muscle groups that if you add up all the sets, let's say you're doing 100 sets per week, that would be for all the muscles in your body and how you then apportion that uh, you can do, let's say, for weaker muscle groups, you can have more sets for your biceps are weaker and your quads are weaker. You'll do more sets for them and you'll do less sets for your chest and back, which are stronger. That is, again, a working theory, as long as you're staying within that total uh, weekly volume. Because, look, what drives overtraining, it's a systemic effect. You know, you're not overtraining by doing, if all you did was 50 sets of uh, biceps curls, you're not going to come out overtrained from that. I mean, right. it might not enhance your biceps growth, but it's not, you're probably not going to see that inverted U in your biceps. The inverted U generally, at least theoretically, would come out from an overtraining standpoint. And that is more the overall systemic effect of volume on the body. So that's number one. And the other thing is, there's nothing that says you should be doing the same volume every day for the rest of your life. And that uh, at least theoretically or hypothetically, because it's really not good research into this topic but certainly anecdotally i think this uh, makes sense uh, from what i have seen and, and logically that um having periods of somewhat lower volume moderate volume and then higher volume where it culminates in somewhat of a periodized fashion allows you to push your body uh to its limits without going into overtraining and the, again the logical basis is is that um the body can handle high amounts of stress for short, short periods of time. It is the sustained uh, effects of stressors, because volume would be a stressor, I mean, exercise yep. in general. The sustained effects of high stressors over time is what co ultimately causes overtraining. And this is something, again, that needs to be validated uh, research-wise, but uh, I think it's a good working theory and something that uh, I've been utilizing in practice. Yeah, that makes sense. So is there a difference between volume uh, in males and females? Or from what your research is pointing to, it seems to be kind of the same because women are always concerned about, you know, a good amount of women are concerned about adding too much muscle tissue. And I always say that it's, we don't, you don't have the testosterone. I mean, you can go into that whole thing and nutrition is huge, but as far as what you've seen for, you know, if you're comparing squats for squats, for example, in guy versus girl, is there a difference in volume in the training style that they should do? Well, I'm going to leave the psychological aspect uh, aside because that's uh, that's a different topic. Mm -hmm. I can get into that topic, but yeah, that's a, an unwarranted topic that unfortunately is has prevented a lot of women from reaping very important benefits. And I think women, if anything, uh, the benefits of strength training are even more important than they are for males, given that 80% of roughly 80% of osteoporosis is in women. Mm. 
uh, and there's greater functional declines with aging in women. So menopause has greater deleterious effects on bone. So that's why women have greater bone loss and, and resistance training is a primary method for uh, attenuating that bone loss. But leaving that aside, um, the, the research in women is, uh, there's not been a lot of it. So the majority of research has been in men, but the research that we do have, uh, and I'm privy to a study that has not been submitted yet, but I was on the, the master's committee of a, uh, of a master's student, a thesis committee, and uh, she carried this out in women with different volumes, and there did not seem to be any difference between men and women. Hmm. So do they have, is it harder for them to add muscle tissue than guys, or is it looking for women? Yeah. Well, it depends upon what you're, on what marker you're using. So on a relative basis or percentage basis, uh-huh. women tend to gain similar amounts of muscle uh, as men. Uh, so if you're, let's say you put a woman on uh, the same program where you get two groups of one women, one men, you put them on the program, uh, you will tend to see similar percentage changes or so relative changes. Uh, however, women start out with lower amounts of muscle. So let's say if a woman is starting out with, I'm just going to throw out hypothetical sure. numbers, 50 pounds of fat-free mass, and a guy starts out with double that. I'm just using these numbers because I'm not a mathematician. And <laughs> That's another so thing say, you don't do. Yeah, it's exactly. So let's say a woman starts out with 50 pounds of fat-free mass, and a guy starts out with 100 pounds of fat-free mass, um, and both of them gain 10%. The woman gained five pounds of the guy of fat-free mass. The guy gained 10 pounds of fat-free mass. So on an absolute basis, men will be gaining more but on the relative basis, they're similar. Okay, that makes sense. All right, now what about, you know, obviously lots of people are in classes right now, but if, if you're going to these boot camp type classes, and I'm not going to mention names, and you're ha- having people going from doing a, they're saying the one minute sprint, I'm not going to get into that, it's impossible to sprint for a minute, but you go into that, and then you're going into, you know, deadlifts and something else, and there's no breather in between, and they're just knocking this out for 55 minutes straight, and they're just leaving, they're leaving the class, and they're not taking any rest periods, or they're just overloading, you know, the anterior part of their body. Uh, is, is there going to be long-term detrimental effects for people doing that? Because, I mean, you know, anybody, like as you said, a beginner can get results, you know, just starting right away. So I know a lot of people that take these classes are more comfortable. But when you're doing, you know, chest press followed by push-up followed by something else, and then you're in there and you're not taking proper recovery, um, is there anything that people should be aware of? And, and the caveat to that is, are, is that going to be good for individuals who are taking these classes for weeks on end that don't have any sort of rest? So it's going to depend upon what your, gain, what your goals are. Mm-hmm. Um, if, your goal, if, if you're a bodybuilder, the, the class is not going to be the best way to uh, maximize your muscle. If nothing else, as we've kind of touched on, uh, it's a very individual, you know, optimizing results is a very individual process. So uh, if you take a generic class, that's not going to optimize or probably not going to. And the ability to push yourself is harder. It's just a different framework. Um, if you're talking, I, I think classes are, are very good for people that just want to get some results they want to get a little stronger they want to get some muscle they want to lose some weight they want to have social aspects so uh, again it would depend upon how you look at certainly uh not resting can be detrimental in itself to uh muscular gains because you're uh you're overloading the body neuro the body's neural system neuromuscular system and thus you're going to diminish its ability to perform maximally on subsequent sets, even if you do different exercises. Uh, But you have to balance that with people who just want to uh, feel better. I mean, a lot of times you get more, it makes it more cardiovascular, so Mm. you could get more endorphin release. And also it's more uh, time efficient, so you can get out quicker. Those again are kind of, what are your goals? <laughs> so, yeah, a, a lot of this is contextually based. I get questions all the time. Like, how do I get in shape? Like, 
what does in shape mean to you? They go down that rabbit hole. Uh, it's, it's hard to answer. Uh, in general, what, what, what rest period, since we're talking about that, um, should people get, I guess, I mean, you can see people in the gym that are doing a, you know, a bench press and they're sitting and taking 10 minutes long, you know, for the average individual. So let's give a context to it here. The average individual that add, wants to add some muscle tissue and maybe just get a little bit leaner, uh, what should they be looking at for, you know, taking proper rest to get maximum gains per lift? Well, first of all, getting leaner is really much more of a uh, function of your diet and training itself. I, I don't, uh, and I've kind of moved away from what I used to believe uh, as far as kind of metabolic training, resistance training. I think that it's just a matter of training for uh, if your goal is fat loss. Now, if you're saying just gain a little bit of muscle, that again, you're now telling, what I'm telling you is that at that point, if you just want to gain a little muscle, then taking very short rest is going to be fine because you mm -hmm. can gain some muscle. But now if you're saying to me you want to maximize your muscle growth, that would be a different answer. Because mm -hmm. So the short rest can be a benefit then if you just want to uh, gain some muscle because you get out of the gym quicker. It'll be a more efficient workout. Yep. If you're saying you want to maximize growth, the research is pointing to somewhere between two to three minutes for your compound movements, your multi-joint, specifically free weights might be somewhat longer in this regard, but like a squat, uh, deadlift, although I don't personally think a deadlift is the greatest hypertrophy exercise anyway, but like a squat, a leg press, bench press, row, uh, shoulder press, uh, roughly two to three minutes rest, and your single joint, and particularly your machine, single joint machine type movements, uh, they would be uh, one minute to 90 seconds or so. Uh, so you can, you can get similar uh, benefits. You know? And really it has to do with the fact that if you're taking, with your compound movements, if you're taking very short rest, you're going to see a big drop off in the uh, volume load and how much weight you can use on the subsequent sets. And we actually have a paper that just came out very recently in the past month that showed that uh, the decrement in volume load really is what drives the reduction. That, that makes a lot of sense. So, what, so if, we're, if we're talking about sets and exercises, and I do want you to answer, answer the question or the comment about the deadlifts, what about these advanced training techniques? Um, you do talk about this in your book, whether that's doing a, a pre-exhaustive set or you know, primer activation technique that you know, some people are talking about. Uh, what have you found seems to be, you know, if you're going to do an advanced technique, drop set, pyramid set, you know, we can name a bunch of them. Um, what is your favorite for people that want to get the most result out of these techniques? Because you see a lot of people trying to like do pyramid sets and drop sets and ladder sets in every single workout, and they're just overloading uh, too much. What's your favorite? Yeah, the advanced techniques have not been, for the most part, very well studied. Um, I think the one that has the most utility for maximizing muscle growth, uh, based on the literature, uh, as well as logical rationale and, and personal experience, would be um, accentuated eccentric, so uh, eccentric overload training, where you would use a very heavy uh, loads more than your 1RM and then lower it under control. A good way of going about doing that would be, let's say, you can do it nicely on a leg extension or a leg curl where you lift the weight up, let's say a somewhat lighter weight with both legs, and then you lower, on the lowering phase, you lower it with one leg. So let's say yeah. you'd, the first rep you'd lower with your right leg, the second rep you'd lower with just your left leg, and you'd lift up with both legs, and that gets you your eccentric overload. Uh, and there is some decent evidence that that... Uh, that has additional benefits on hypertrophy. Um, I do like drop sets. If nothing else, I think they're, it's equivocal as to whether they enhance growth, but I think it allows, where I like to use it is to uh, increase the amount of volume that you're doing without increasing the time. So rather than having to rest, uh, it does not actually, what's been shown is that it doesn't, uh, it certainly doesn't impede growth. There's been some research that shows it might enhance it, but the majority kind of seem to show not, but at least it certainly doesn't seem to impede it. And the fact that you can then get more volume in, uh, so on a volume equated basis, it's been the same, but it allows you, uh, let's say you're just doing it on the last set of an exercise. So let's say you're doing three sets, 
if on that last set of the exercise you do a drop set, you're basically getting in additional volume without impairing any other aspect of the routine. So it's something that I like to report. Yeah, I, I like drop sets. If people listening, that's just basically taking that last set and you know taking it to failure and then going a little bit lighter. And then you can you can hit a certain number of reps with it, but just if you're doing 15 pound curl, then go to 10 pound, then go to five. So, um, just to make it a little elementary. All right, so let's talk about cardio. Now, uh, people that are wanting to um, you know, get maximum muscle tissue um, results, is there a place for cardio within the same session? Should they split it up? Um, and maybe what type of cardio have you found to be the best? Another uh, very, it depends answer here. Um, what is, what is the volume that should the duration, uh, you know, so how long are you exercising cardio wise? What is the, uh, as well as what are you doing with the resistance training wise as well? Again, to, let's say you're doing your regular resistance workout. Uh, that's a moderate uh, volume workout. So what is your duration of your training uh, cardio? What is the intensity? Uh, the frequency is going to enter into it as well. What is the, training status of the individual, the age to some extent of the individual is going to enter into this. All these are going to have uh, effects that will you know, mitigate my answer. Yeah. Um, what I would say is, is that ideally it is generally best to split up the training, uh, cardio and, uh, and lifting. So if you can, separate days like Monday resistance, Tuesday aerobic, often that isn't feasible. Uh, then the default to that would be morning uh, lifting, evening cardio. Often there is not the possibility of that. So if you're going to do it in the same session, the best advice would be to do your cardio after your lifting session. Mm. Uh, but again, it's going to really depend. If, if you're walking, the negative effects on your lifting session are going to be much less than if you did a heavy, uh, heavy-duty, high-intensity interval training session. So. Mm. Uh, and then your age again is going to enter into this. Uh, those who are um, in the early stages of training actually can see a hypertrophic benefit, a growth related benefit to adding in some cardio, particularly in your type one muscle fibers. Whereas those who are more well trained seem to show either neutral or negative effects. Hmm. So I'm. I know that some people have said as far as when they're doing cardio and that makes sense. Like contextually, basically when I tell people, if, if you're going to do a heavy leg day, you probably don't want to do some sprints beforehand because you're, you're going to be shot and you're not going to be able to handle that, you mm -hmm. know, the heavy back squat, whatever you're doing, but a light five minute jog kind of makes sense. Or maybe, and if you're going for a time, and you're trying to get your best mile run in or you do a mile repeats, you're probably not gonna have your best times after doing a, a leg day as well. So um, yeah, I mean, I kind of prescribe the same, same thing for my clients when at all possible, uh, separate them. And I, when I was training for a Spartan, I had to kind of do everything in one because there's all these different components. Um, but then I would also have my low level um, cardio days where I just would run like a nine or 10 minute mile just slowly. And there's some days where I just kind of hit it hard at the gym and then, uh, we do those compound lifts. Um, so let's talk about, you talked about the deadlift not being one of your favorite um, hypertrophic uh, lifts. What are the, the few lifts that uh, you would be the go-tos? If you were named, you know, three, four or five lifts, like here's the ones that, um, that you like the best that you're generally prescribing in a program. So the reason I generally don't like the deadlift is a good exercise, particularly for overall strength, but it's just too um neurologically demanding uh, it's, it, because it's so taxing on the entire body it tends to interfere with your recovery from a bodybuilding standpoint from a muscle development standpoint and thus it's going to have negative effects on your ability to maximize your volume over time and volume is a primary driver of hypertrophy um when you say what are my favorite i, I I can tell you what I like, but the, the ultimately the choice of exercise shouldn't be what I like. It's uh, it's specific to the individual. It's kind of what feels best to you. Uh, it's always going to be specific to your weak or strong. A lot of times people have favorites because they do well in them, but that right. generally is not the way you want to look at an exercise. And I think really what the most important aspect from, again, from a, if you're looking to maximize your physique, the muscular development, 
it should be based upon working the muscles from all angles from, or from the proper angles to get the entire muscle developed. So if you're working, let's say you're looking for deltoid development, if you're just going to do a shoulder press, you're going to have suboptimal development of your lateral, your, your middle deltoid, and your posterior deltoid, the front, uh, the military press or uh, overhead press is primarily an anterior deltoid excess. You need to do lateral raise, some type of lateral raise and some type of uh, posterior delt exercise, bent lateral, reverse pec deck, et cetera. Uh, I, I mean, I love a reverse cable uh, uh, fly for uh, rear delts. Some people hate it. Yep. So it, it just feels good to me. And right. I, I like the constant tension on the muscle. Um, I, I think to some extent, the strength curves of different exercises like dumbbells or, or, and barbells to some extent are going to be better for certain exercises than others based on the strength curve. But uh, you can build a great physique using, you know, all, basically all the modalities. And yep. Ultimately, again, I think it comes down to what feels good to an individual. Well, that makes sense because... Uh generally a muscle that you're not feeling isn't going to be growing. If you're doing a bicep curl and you're not feeling your bicep, it's probably not something's happening there. So, um, you know, contextually based on makes a lot of sense. So just make sure you're feeling that work. And, and for me, like I like the, you know, cable reverse flies as well. Cause I can just, I can feel my posterior delts working. I'm, I'm long and lanky. I'm six, three, I'm built like an albino gorilla. Uh, so for me to, to feel my shoulders, posterior delts are specifically working. Um, it's a little bit more difficult. So I think people try to get more mixed up in doing all these fancy movements and trying to like, how many ways can you shorten your bicep? Like how, how many ways can you make a curl as opposed to doing something fancy? Um, do what feels right. And I think maybe overload over time or, you know, add some isometrics or something in there. I was talking about nutrition a little bit because th this is huge. Uh, the anabolic window, is that a myth? I, well, you, <laughs> Is it a myth? Uh, the the narrow the concept of a narrow anabolic window that if you don't take in uh, protein within the nutrients generally, but certainly if you don't take in protein anabolic window for protein for muscle development, if you don't take in protein within forty five minutes to an hour of your workout, that should start going catabolic. That is a myth uh, to to a large extent. Even that. now, I will say when you say is it a myth, certainly there is a benefit or there's nutrient timing is going to be a factor. Mm -hmm. If you don't eat for 24 hours after your workout, it's going to have negative effects on the development that you achieve from that workout. There's no, no question about that. So the question then becomes, how long do you wait? And what, where do you start to see negative effects? And that's where it's much more nu nuanced. And uh, based upon work that we've done and that we've looked at from a meta analytic standpoint, uh, what I would say is that the window is tends to be more of a barn door. Uh, it was a nice article by my colleague Sean Arendt uh, recently uh, that he published and discuss, actually discussed that, but he published about this as well. And it also seems to be predicated upon when you take in your pre-workout meal. So if you're training fasted, there's going to be more of a need for you to take in protein more quickly post-workout than if you had, let's say, uh, a, you know, an omelet. Uh, or a shake uh, an hour before you lift it. So that's where the nuances start to come in. And uh, we talk about myths. Uh, people want to have these hard cutoffs, and that's where you can talk about a myth. Yeah. But certainly I would not, people have then taken that out of context to say that nutrient timing is a myth, and it's a myth that nutrient timing is a myth. So. <laughs> Uh, nutrient timing certainly yeah. is relevant. It's just the extent, of, and that's where the it depends again. It's going to come in. Yeah, I mean, if if you're on the Devils or the St. Louis Blues, go Blues. Um, yeah, they're they're I'm going. I'm ending this interview. <laughs> they, I, 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 was, I got hey, I got 45 minutes out of you. <laughs> so I, if you're a professional athlete, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna want to take that in immediately. And you're I emphasize I emphasize yeah. the importance of nutrient timing yeah. at a sports level, especially yeah. at an elite sports level. Yeah. Uh, that's where it can make a critical difference. So, yeah. yeah. And, and that's, by the way, even for bodybuilders, even though there's not much, the literature is, is very weak to say that there's a benefit. Uh, you, I still can't rule out there might be a very small benefit to mm -hmm. taking uh, it in more quickly, even if you did have pre-workout. Yep. So there's no harm. To, certainly there's not a detriment to it. And if you're looking to eke out every ounce of muscle, 
for if I'm coaching a bodybuilder, I'm going to say, you know what, take in protein yep. quickly. It's not like you got to take your your body, your protein bottle to the gym to slam <laughs> and shake the second you lift right. it. But within a short period of time thereafter, you should be trying to consume protein. Yeah. So a lot of these people that, you know, are taking those classes and they're working out for an hour and then they've got their smoothie waiting for them. Like it's been three minutes. I need to chug this thousand calorie shake. Yet you only burned to 500 calories. Like, wait a minute. Are you trying to lose weight? You just took in a thousand calories. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, but as a touch of it. So maybe you can save your 15, 20 bucks and go home and make your smoothie for a few bucks uh, and save several hundred dollars uh, per month on top of your, your class. That's being, that's being overly anal about it. And you're not, <laughs> not going to derive additional benefits. Yeah, you'll be fine. All right. So you've been doing this for a long time. Um, have you gotten anything wrong? And uh, what was it? I mean, when you say gotten it wrong, I, I'm not even sure that's the right way to look at it. But my I have changed my opinion. Okay. Uh, I, you know, generally I tried, but yeah, I mean, certainly I've gotten, I can say yes, definitely wrong. But in a lot of times when you say got wrong, I think that as research evolves, so is my opinions. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I can go through a litany of things that we just, we talked earlier about the uh, loading. I mean, I was a proponent, my book, Max Muscle Plan, what I preached for many years was that you shouldn't lift uh, loads below 70 65, 70% 1RM, because it's not going to stimulate high threshold modians. Prove me wrong about that. Uh, I believe that um, you should have short rest periods to uh, maximize the metabolic stress aspect and certainly the anabolic hormone uh, to maximize muscle growth. That, as I mentioned, has gone down the tubes. I was a proponent of split body routines, uh, mostly because that's what Arnold said. <laughs> And all uh, can't be, can't be and wrong. My, again, my own research uh, and others as well has shown that uh, really not doesn't hold up. Uh, the anabolic window uh, was one. I, I can go on. So yeah, yeah. there's been so many things. The the true scientist is always curious, always skeptical, uh, and never secure. Or, or always, I don't want to say your level of security comes as more research comes out and the, and the strength of evidence. There are certain things now I'm a lot more confident about just because we have a ton of research that would make me highly confident or we're very, I would be very surprised. It would seem to me almost impossible at some point that you'd get enough research to counteract some of the things we know now. Mm -hmm. um, but um, the majority of topics I am still uh, I, I don't think the strength of evidence is, is really high one way or another. So I have, depending on the topic you're saying, somewhat more confidence. I, I will go back. So I would say that like the light load, heavy load, I am highly confident that there is no difference at a whole muscle level, at least on the whole muscle level, yeah. that um, you can lift light, you can lift heavy, as long as you are lifting with a high degree of effort that you uh, will get substantial muscle growth. And I, I just don't see how more research at this point can counteract that. But here's what I would say. There, I am still on the fence as to whether you might get more type one growth from doing light load training and more type two growth from doing heavy load training. And that might uh, indicate a benefit to combining heavy and light loads within a given routine. Uh, the evidence is equivocal as far as that goes. So some studies have shown a benefit, others haven't. And uh, I am certainly open to, uh, my opinion is really in the middle at this point, and I'm not sure. But when I'm not sure, I would say there's really no detriment to it. And mm. unless you're a power lifter, if your goal is maximum muscle development, I think there is a benefit or a potential benefit and thus reason to use some heavy and some light lifting. Good. Uh, people type one, type two muscle fiber, type one, a little more endurance. So if you're gonna look at, for example, like a marathon runner, even more type one, Sprinter Usain Bolt's probably gonna have more explosive type two fibers. Uh, where, where do you feel like the future of fitness is heading? Is it like these things like ARX, or, you know, AI? Where do you really feel like the, the future of, uh, you know, let's specifically talk about um, hypertrophy training is, is heading? Um, most of the future of hypertrophy, the future of training in general, it's so hard to know. I mean, obviously I think the, internet is going to start having more and more effects on that mm -hmm. uh, in terms of interactive strategies and the information. 
I would say with hypertrophy, where when you say, where is it going? I think at some point, I'm not saying this is going to happen within the next year or two, but I would hope over the next decade that you'll start to get the genetic testing, uh, which will be able to allow you to hone in on uh, optimizing programming strategies based on your own genetic code. And that I think would be a huge, uh, they started to do this with nutrition, which again, I don't think is, is anywhere near uh, being relevant where you can practically use it. But I would hope over the next decade or so, uh, technology is evolving so rapidly that I, I would think and hope that we should at least be starting to get closer to where that's going to become a reality. And I, I have no doubt that at some point in the future, probably not too distant if we're talking 25 years, let's say, mm-hmm. that will certainly be reality. Amazing. Well, I won't call you, call you Dr. Brad. Can't dance bad at relationships, but amazing at, at research and teaching and speaking. And hopefully, you can start flying places soon. Uh, where can people find you? I'm all over uh, the internet. I mean, you could just basically Google me. But I mean, I'm on Instagram, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, Twitter. I do a lot more just geeky science on Twitter. I do more applied stuff on Instagram, and Facebook is kind of potpourri. So I'm on all three of those uh, social media outlets and uh, hook me up, follow me. And uh, my goal again is to educate. So I don't generally don't do, uh, I certainly don't do uh, shirtless selfies. (laughs) I can't speak for myself. Uh, It gets the followers. Uh, I don't do as many as I used to. Once I start having a kid, I'm like, all right, let me me just stay away from that. Now it's more like, hey, I'm actually working out right now. It's hot outside. So I'm going to get a tan. Gonna, gonna take a good picture that's okay uh, you can give me shit about it uh brad Schoen, Each uh, thank, thank you so much um it's been an honor it's been my pleasure um i'm joey thurman this is the fatter future podcast remember don't be a fatty f-a-d-d-y be a part of the future mm-hmm.